From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. What to do about controlling modern sporting rifles, or as gun control people like to call them, assault weapons. Of course, Beto O'Rourke has said uh, we're going to confiscate them, but maybe there's a better solution. And so that's why we've called up Saul Cornell. He chairs the American History Department at Fordham University. But more important for this interview, he was once the director of the Second Amendment Research Center at the John Glenn Institute. And you have proposed, Professor, a tax on uh, these semi-automatic rifles. Why Why do you think that's the best way to go here? Well, there are a couple of reasons why I I thought that uh, we should turn to taxation as as one of the policy tools we use. First of all, uh, guns are taxed now. Very few people probably realize that, but uh, guns are taxed currently uh, in order to pay for conservation. Uh, So that's been in place for a long time. And if you think about the very origins of the Second Amendment and the very uh, beginning of gun regulation in the new nation, uh, most people don't realize that Americans were required to purchase guns, not any gun, but a particular kind of gun that the government wanted them to have because it was the standard issue weapon of the 18th century military. Of course, unlike many modern Americans in the 18th century, the last thing most people wanted was to buy a heavy uh brown best musket because most people wanted to buy fowling pieces to hunt turkeys or light hunting muskets so they could clear their fields of critters and put food on the table. Uh, you know, nobody goes uh, looking to put food on the table w- by bayonetting a turkey. So no. the very idea at the beginning was that government has a real vested interest in the kind of weapons that Americans need to own. And if necessary, they can actually force them and impose uh, a tax on them because buying, forcing you to buy your own weapon and 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 making you shoot your own ammo is in essence a tax. It's it's really the first unfunded federal uh, <laughs> mandate. mandate. <laughs> you know the, the the original Obamacare tax was actually the uh, the first uh, militia act. <laughs> so all right, fine. So you you set you, you've established a legal foundation for this tax, but how? How would that achieve the goal of keeping these weapons out of the wrong hands? Okay, so there there are two two aspects. So, and again, the pol- you know, like any policy, we need to bring together all of the players, and we need to design it in the most intelligent fashion possible, and we need to do it in such a way that we maximize our public policy outcome and we minimize any. Uh, negative impact it would have on people. It's not going to be free because nothing is ever free. Um, If you want to produce political and social change, there's always some cost. So, you know, the the tax at manufacturing will, of course, raise the price of all guns across the board. But what I'm particularly interested in thinking about is is trying to use tax policy both as as a carrot and a stick. So, for instance, um, despite a lot of the rhetoric, I mean, it seems pretty clear that the reason people want uh, AR-15 weapons is because they're fun. Uh, you know, they're very powerful. They're very customizable. They have lo- they're very low recoil. They're very similar to kind of weapons that many people in the military trained on. So I think we should be honest. Americans want AR-15s because they like them. Um, and, and, and so the question is, uh, do you have to have it under your bed or do can you just, you know, 
get your AR-15, lock it up at the firing range, like you might leave your golf clubs at the at, at the golf course. And if you do that, there's no additional tax penalty. Uh, but if you want to sleep with it under your bed, which creates certain kinds of social costs to the rest of us, it means that somebody can steal it. It means that uh, you have to keep an eye on the people in your extended family like a hawk to make sure that we don't wind up with a new town situation. Right. Well, then we're going to put a tax. But again, the good news is because it's a tax scheme, we can say, well, but if you have a gun safe at home and it's the right kind of gun safe, we're going to give you a tax break. And so we can start to reward uh, gun owners for, for, for responsible behaviors, which most gun owners do anyway. And we can begin to use these kind of nudges to try and nudge people in who are not as interested in, in, in the responsible kinds of behavior to start doing it or it'll cost them. Yeah, so no confiscation, uh, no door-to-door search for weapons, but a uh, a tax at this would be at the manufacturing level, so the tax would be built into the price of the gun, essentially. Well, I mean, uh, again, we, we you know since we've barely scratched the surface of how something like this would uh, would work, there are two ways that the tax could work. You could do the tax at the manufacturer, which will just raise the price of the guns uh, from the get-go. Uh, but I also envision that we might want to start using taxation policy in a more creative way so that, for instance, if you train with your weapon in a, in a, in a, in a licensed uh, federal firing range where, you know, that, it, that obeys all safety protocols, you should get a tax break for that. If you store your gun in a safe, you should get a tax break. But if you want to engage in, in behaviors that are less uh, safe, uh, you should you should pay some kind of tax consequence. You know, if you want to stockpile weapons, you know, you should pay some kind of tax for that. So what I'm trying to think about is, can we change the whole debate? Can we change the whole calculus? Can we make it about how do we encourage people to do the safest things possible uh, consistent with gun ownership? And how can we discourage them from doing those things which are riskier? I mean, if you look at uh, nations where, where which have certainly not as high levels of gun ownership as America, because nobody has that. I mean, we have we have more than one gun for every man, woman, child, toddler. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of astonishing how many guns are out there in America. But if you look at places like Switzerland and Israel, uh, people who have those guns are really well trained. Uh, there are clear uh, and pretty stringent regulations, but they have much lever much lower levels of of gun violence than we do. So, uh, you know, for instance, I always find it astonishing that in many places you don't even need to train with a weapon in order to get a concealed weapons permit. I mean, you know, what kind of logic does that make? Well, that's that's justified by the Second Amendment, that if if you impose a training requirement, you are abridging the right to keep and bear arms. Well, except that uh, everyone was required to train in the 18th century, so it couldn't be abridging the Second Amendment because then the Second Amendment was unconstitutional because as part of that Second Amendment, there was very stringent requirements. People were uh, told what kind of weapon they had. If they didn't show up to muster, they were fined. If they didn't store the weapon properly, they were fined. They, the weapons were inspected. Uh, there was a ton of regulation at the time that the Second Amendment. I mean, that's one of the biggest myths out there. So, is that is common knowledge among people familiar with the Second Amendment? Because I don't believe I follow the NRA on Twitter. I have don't recall ever hearing them point that out. Well, of course they wouldn't point out. It's not in their interest. That's not how you sell more guns. That's not how you whip up more 
concern over you know gun regulation. The fact is, as long as there have been guns in America, there have been regulations. And in some ways, regulation got greater after the Second Amendment. It didn't get uh, less of a problem, became more of, a, of an urgency because weapons change and the social uh, context in which weapons are used changes. So uh, gun regulation is as uh, much a part of the Second Amendment as owning firearms. And we haven't emphasized that because it hasn't been in the interest of the people who speak most loudly in this debate. But uh, there were tons of regulations in uh, in America. The, you know, you couldn't have a loaded firearm in, in a domestic dwelling in the city of Boston because of the danger it posed. Uh, you know, there were there were very tight regulations on 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 traveling armed in public. There were uh, you know, there was no right to stand your ground. There was a duty to retreat uh, uh, at the time of the Second Amendment. So essentially almost everything we think we know about the Second Amendment and that it comes to us through the Web and through political punditry is almost always historically inaccurate. And in many, if not all cases, it's almost the mirror image of the historical reality that it's trying to to present. Hmm. So it's been a month since your piece appeared in The Atlantic talking about this uh, assault weapons tax. What kind of reaction have you heard? Well, I got a couple of um, people saying, it's an interesting idea. Nobody's ever said this before. We should think about it. And uh, that's pretty much all. That's <laughs> all it, I've huh? heard about it. The NRA hasn't picked up on this as, as a better alternative than Beto's gun confiscation? Um, no, because I think there's a, you know, we, ha- we have to recognize that we've created something that I think the founding generation could not have anticipated, where there are these perverse incentives to polarize political debate, uh, because it, you know, it whips people up, it makes it easier to fundraise. Uh, you know, I like to say that, um, you know, the oldest uh, story in American popular culture uh, is the good guy with the gun story. You know, it's the Lone Ranger. Right. It's 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 the Sam Spade detective. It's it's Jason Bourne. Uh, and you know that person uh, populates our culture. And that person essentially is someone who has kind of this natural code of justice, who uses violence in a controlled but redemptive way. He sets the the system straight, and then he rides off into the sunset. Now. No one has ever really pitched a, a screenplay to Hollywood about, about people getting together to rationally debate, you know, public policy and come to the best compromise so that we can incrementally lower gun violence at the <laughs> lowest possible cost to gun owners. You know, yeah. Matt Damon has not signed on to do that no. role. No, that wouldn't require that would require no stuntmen and zero special effects. And so, yeah, exactly. That film will exactly. never will never be made. But um so, but I think that's the movie the Founding Fathers would yes. want us to make now. I'm curious. Now, you, you, um, it says here you formerly directed the Second Amendment Research Center. Was that funded by the, the NRA? I mean, uh, or is it a misnomer? I mean, how come you're telling such a different story about the history of the Second Amendment than any of us uh, have heard from gun rights people? Well, you know, I came to this issue not because I was, uh, you know, had great interest in the gun debate. I mean, I grew up in New York City, which is typically not part of the uh, the gun culture, although for very bizarre reasons, my stepfather was an NRA member and liked to hunt, which was really not common in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. We mostly hunted bargains, not deer. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, 
you know, and, you know, like I think many people who are taken hunting when they're very, very young, uh, when they're too young to appreciate it, it's a miserable experience because you wake up early, you're cold, you know, not a lot happens for a long time. So, uh, you know, I, I was not brought into the, you know, to the grand traditions of American gun culture the way my students at Ohio State were who got off for you know, two weeks for hunting season, one week for rifle and one week for, for bow. I mean, I realized, you know, and, and actually teaching in Ohio State was very helpful for me because I, I understood there were people who had very different uh, connections to guns than I would have had growing up in New York. Uh, but my interest was just how does history get used in this debate? And, I, you know, as someone who, who, who takes history seriously, I, I was kind of offended and shocked at how how much the history had been manipulated and how badly it had been represented. I mean, we kept on trying to make these, these 18th century characters uh, speak to our issues and our fears and our aspirations. But the Second Amendment reflected their fears and their hopes and their aspirations. And I think that when you do constitutional law and you do it in a serious way, you always have to recognize that you, there's, there's inevitably some process of translation. I mean, these are people who lived in rural societies, face-to-face communities. Um, you couldn't buy a gun anonymously in that society. You had to know your gunsmith because your gun needed a lot of work to keep it in working order. So, you know, what does it mean to apply the Second Amendment today when you can go anonymously into a gun show and buy practically whatever you want? So you're saying that at the time the Second Amendment was written, it, it never crossed anybody's mind that buying a, a weapon would be an anonymous thing because you had to know the, the gunsmith, et cetera, et cetera. We could, couldn't we recreate that today such that a, and I think most gun dealers understand they don't want to, they don't want the name of their store to show up as the place that some mass killer bought their weapon. Right. I mean, nobody, right. nobody wants that. Why, why isn't there a similar culture today to what you had back then, wherein a gun dealer would insist whether there was a regulation or not would insist on knowing who he's selling this weapon to, and whether not whether just whether they're competent, but whether they know how to use it properly and can be trusted with it. Well, ac- absolutely. I mean, I, that is puzzling why we've why we've seemed to have preserved one aspect of that tradition, but let the other part of it uh, just disappear. I mean, uh, you know, when I was in England a couple of years ago, I was uh, uh, at uh, the you know barber store which sells you know those great uh jackets that everyone's fond of probably in your your part of the world too because it rains so often Mm -hmm. those great wax jackets which are you know iconic for you know going hunting for foxes or or beating the bush for quail but barber in england also sells firearms and i was really curious like you know you know let's say i let's say i was a permanent resident of england which obviously i'm not i said what would i have to go to and the guy printed off to me a 30 page thing i would have had to fill out uh, in addition to all the background checks, I would have had to find several of my neighbors who would testify that I was a, of good mind, a good character, um, and that I was the kind of person they would trust with a gun, which is fascinating. Um, because I think, you know, most Americans say, well, you know, it's a right. Why should I have to, like, prove to anyone that I'm, you know, competent with it? But that's not how the 18th century would have thought it. If they would have thought you were posed uh, danger, you would have unquestionably been disarmed because the local justice of the peace, which is an ancient, you know, ancient office under English common law, had vast power to disarm people who posed any threat to public safety. I mean, you know, now we're talking about these so-called extreme risk protection orders and, 
you know, there obviously are some legitimate due process concerns. But at the time of the Second Amendment, uh, you know, you could be disarmed uh, without a lot of the modern due process protections. Not that we should, you know, not that we should emulate everything about the founders. But again, it's ironic that people talk about the Second Amendment and they don't also recognize, well, then you're okay with the local justice piece just disarming you because he thinks you're dangerous. So based on your experience teaching at Ohio State, where I, I take you had a, a rural student population, um, yeah. what do you think would be politically acceptable today in terms of trying to keep weapons out of the wrong hands? Well, um, you know, the vast majority of gun owners are very sensible, and the vast majority of gun owners are not even members of the NRA. Um, and so I think it would be prudent uh, to start with the things that really, truly are common sense and that I've never met um, uh, a gun owner, a responsible gun owner who could uh, disagree with with those kinds of things. So everyone who buys a gun obviously needs to be cleared through a background check. Um, you know, is it a perfect system? No. Everyone who buys a gun should probably be licensed. Now, if people are afraid of a federal government licensing you, uh, you know, maybe we just have the state license you, you know. Uh, but some, you know, you should know how a gun works. You should be able to, you know, clear a chamber when, when a gun, you know, jams, you should, uh, you should, you know, have to know about, um, uh, how to store guns safely, separate ammunition, all the stuff that smart gun owners already do, but you could actually walk into a lot of, um, uh, you know, purchase, purchase firearms in a lot of places in America where you wouldn't have to prove you knew any of that stuff. Oh, right. Like Walmart, <laughs> like Walmart, for one, you know, and I also think if we're going to give people concealed licenses, the, the fact that, you know, <laughs> people who don't go through the same rigorous training as police or military have no obligation to train with that weapon <laughs> at a firing range and yet are assumed to be able to walk around with it. I, I you know. I teach a lot of uh, ex-military, particularly at Ohio State. I taught a lot of ex-military, uh, including a lot of officers. And, you know, they love guns. I mean, these are total gun people. But the idea that you just hand a knucklehead a gun without supervising them, uh, you know, horrified them. Yeah. I, uh, As it should. <laughs> exactly. I can see why. Saul Cornell teaches at the... American History Department at Fordham University and formerly directed the Second Amendment Research Center at the John Glenn Institute. Professor Cornell, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.